According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, picking up where we left off Sunday morning. Although I had so much fun with the Proverbs this morning, I'm tempted to go right back to that study. But Anyway, now it wouldn't be fair to them. We've got to keep that story going on the, on the Wednesday morning class and keep Philippians going here on Wednesday evening. Philippians chapter 1. And we're getting down to the uh, end here, uh, looking at uh, verses 9 through 11. Uh, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So we're going to learn about abounding love here tonight and how it's not emotional, how it's grounded in the teaching from the Word of God, in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent and you may disapprove the things that are not excellent. And uh, this is the key to discrimination. So we're going to learn how to discriminate It's our good discrimination class here tonight. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have tonight. We thank You that each one of us that's born again is indwelled by the Spirit of truth. And that, uh, Father, you are the God of truth and you're faithful to lead us in, uh, in the truth. And Father, uh, I rejoice in how simple truth is, that which conforms to reality. Um, our adversary, Father, is a liar and he, uh, he loves the lies and he loves to, to shade things with his lies. And so, Father, uh, thank you for tonight, for the blessings of being able to have the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Bless our time in your truth tonight, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a microphone ready to go then for our leadoff question. And I believe I promised Kathy to the first question and then we'll get Doug our second question. How about that? All right. Yes, ma'am. Okay, I've really enjoyed the study you've been doing on Hebrews. And I remember King of King and Lord of Lords by R.B. Thing. And that really affected me a lot. And at the time of his crucifixion, all the sin of the world was poured on him at one time, period in time, past, present, and future. And up until this time, Christ, who created the heavens and earth, had continually and does continually hold them together. How, when all that sin was poured on him, he was being judged. Was Christ holding the universe together or God the Father and the Holy Spirit? Or did that still rest within the Son? I I would take that still was resting within the Son. You know, the, the deity of God the Son did not die on the cross. And so, uh, you know, with respect to God the Son who upholds all things by the word of his power, you know, we understand that it, the God-man went to the cross and when he laid down his, his soul, 
That was his human soul, human spirit. He died the spiritual death from the standpoint of his humanity is concerned. God the Son cannot die, so it's not like the deity of God the Son you know, was, was turned off for three hours. So um, that's a great question, though, and I appreciate you bringing that up. We're gonna, we'll be talking about that this coming Sunday when we talk about the difference between sin singular and sins plural. The fact that, yes, every personal sin was cast upon him, but bigger than that was that eternal estate of sin that was placed upon him. And, uh, and he handled that as well. In some respects, those personal little deeds are kind of nothing compared to the big estate of sin, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll, we'll say more on that on, on Sunday. We serve an awesome God. Oh, we do. Yes, ma'am. All right, so back row then. Doug gets our second question tonight. Pastor Bob, could you briefly explain preterism to us? <laughs> yeah. And uh, is there a father of preterism, someone who promoted it? Uh, um, present well, day, maybe, or. Augustine in the old times. I mean. Um, Preterism is the view that, uh, that everything written in Revelation is past. So don't think of it as future, think of it as past. And so uh, when it was written, it was designed to convey the things, uh, the terrible things that were going to happen to the Jewish people in 70 AD when Titus destroyed Jerusalem. So, um, so yeah, everything, the, 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 the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, all of that wrath, all of that, that's all, don't... Quit looking for that in the future because that's done. That's all fulfilled in the, the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. All right? And depending on what flavor of preterism, there are full preterists and partial preterists, and there's different flavors because even, even some of them can't swallow all of the stuff they're dishing up. And so they kind of they they, they, they weasel out of some of the things. They, they do want to look forward to Jesus coming back, some of them. Uh, but others, no. Jesus is here. He's here uh, in the church. That uh, the Roman church. That's he's the vicar of Christ. This is Christ. The kingdom is here. Um, we're in the millennium. By the way, I mean we've been in the millennium now. Satan is bound. Did you know that Satan is bound? Um, they, they, uh, the view is 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 bizarre. But but it really sits at the core of Roman Catholic theology. It sits at the core of Reformed theology. You know, uh, a lot of the Reformed people, R.C. Sproul, a lot of these guys, they're not looking to a future fulfillment. Now, some are. Again, depends on which one you're talking to. Um, but even they admit that they've got, some, they've got some inconsistencies among themselves. So that's the preterist view, as opposed to the futurist view. The futurist view says, we haven't seen the, the Antichrist yet. We haven't seen the Tribulation. We haven't seen Armageddon. We haven't seen the Millennium. And if, if when the millennium gets here, we're going to know it. Okay, It's going to be obvious. Jesus Christ will be seated on a throne in Jerusalem ruling this world. And it's going to be just as literal and just as obvious as when a virgin conceived and bore a son. So we don't have to, we don't have to get uh, um, goofy with our hermeneutic, with our interpretation. Say, Does that answer what yes, you were asking? It was great. Thank you. Okay. And then there's some very vocal ones out there. They're very hostile. They're very ugly. They... Um, they, they, they don't like dispensationalism, so they'll attack us for the rapture view and things like that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just a, a pretty sad view. Yes, sir. Okay. The Lord says that he's going to build a mansion for us, right? In John 14, in my yeah. Father's house are many dwelling places. Okay. Uh-huh. 
No, we were not going to. We don't have to sleep. We don't have to cook any meals. <laughs> right. Why do we need a place? You know, that's a marvelous question. Uh, Jesus, in his resurrection body, did eat with his disciples. And so, even though it may not be a matter of need, I think it's a matter of want. It's a pleasure. It's a delight. Uh, I like food, and uh, I like the idea that we'll have food in all eternity in heaven. Um, but Jesus did eat with his disciples in John 21 and other passages. So um, the resurrection body is capable of eating. Uh, the, the idea of a dwelling place, the idea of a home. By the way, I, I think mansion is not a, a good translation. That's the old King James translation. Uh, that, that you could think of them more as, as apartments or condos or, or rooms, dwelling places. Um, but uh, yeah, why do we need such a place? I think in, in part, though, the idea is we are, we are uh, designed that way. We have relationships, we have places. We, uh, if you don't have a place to call your own, how do you invite somebody over for fellowship? So I, I think some of that may be involved, too, in the, in the blessings there. So that's a good question, though. I'll have to think about that. That's, that's going to haunt me. I may not sleep tonight. All right. Is there one, Pastor Bob, is there one specific verse you could point to uh, to refer to the cessation of tongues? One verse for what? Cessation of tongues. Oh, yeah. First Corinthians 13, tongues will cease. And so it's... Well, uh, you know, we were having discussions with our family this week, and yeah. they all believe in tongues. I don't, and I wanted to clearly point them out, too. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's interesting, because I've had similar discussions with folks, and um, they, they, they get pretty defensive, they get pretty accusatory, and, and so they say, well, the Bible never says tongues are, are, are going to cease. And, I say, and so I, very, I just kind of smile, and I turn, and I, I, uh, I say, well, I don't know what, what Bible translation you're reading, but... You know, here in my Bible, First um, Corinthians 13 says, because um, they've accused me of this, right? They say, oh, you're one of those. I say, I'm one of what? You know, well, you're a cessationist. I said, yeah, and so are you. And they said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I said, well, yeah, you are. You just don't know it yet. And so we look here at First Corinthians 13, and it's black and white, plain as day, tongues will cease. And because, uh, you know, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. And so it's right there. And if, and if they reject that, well, then, you know, you can offer to get a black Sharpie or something and mark it out of their Bibles if it's not comfortable for them. So I, I tell them, see, right there, tongues will cease. And they say, well, yeah, but not yet. And as soon as he said, oh, yeah, but not yet, I just kind of smiled even bigger. And I said, oh, well, then we agree that we're both cessationists, we just differ on the timing then. Is that what you're saying? It's a timing issue. You know, as long as we agree that tongues will cease, now we can discuss the timing of it because this passage also gives us the timing of it. And, and it's fun to take a look at the dunaway cease, dunaway pattern because they're different verbs. And in verse 8, are, are you with me here? Look at verse 8. Um, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are, is knowledge, uh, tongues, they will cease. And if there is knowledge, it will be done away. Okay? So there's done away, cease, done away. And that's important, that, that, that order. And then in verse 9, he says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. And those are the two things that are done away. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The one that's left out of verse, uh, of verse 10 is, is tongues. 
You see what I'm talking about there? So there's knowledge and there's prophecy, and they're the ones that are done away when the perfect comes. But then there's tongues. And the answer for when tongues ceases comes in chapter 14. And in chapter 14, we have a description of tongues and how tongues are a sign to the unbeliever. And so um, the idea of, well, if tongues are for a sign, what's the sign? What's the purpose of the sign? And, and how do we get this? And so it involves a discussion from chapter 13 to chapter 14, and then going back to Isaiah to show the purpose for sign, uh, the sign of tongues. It was a warning to the Jewish people of their national destruction. And... Um, and the application there. So anyway, we, we did this for hours. We've got material on this on the website. It's in the First Corinthians notebook in chapter 13 and in chapter 14. And then and it really, I think, spells it out in a, in a, in a, in a pretty neat way. And I, I was thankful that the Lord provided that when we were going through that chapter. All right, thank you. All right, I can give a last call then if we have any additional questions, anything that... Uh, Quick and easy, I can answer in 30 seconds or less. Or else, we'll go right to our Philippians study. All right, well, let's go to Philippians then. Thank you, Christopher. All right. We have the thinking in verse 7 and the Feelings in verse 8, and then the prayer request, starting here in verse 9. Uh, verse 7 says, It is only right for me to think this way about you all. That's not feel, that's think. Phreneo is the verb, it's a thinking verb. And it's a righteous thought. Okay, Not a righteous feeling, it is a righteous thought. If we're going to conform to God's standard of righteousness, we do so in our thinking. And that's, uh, that's critical as well. So it is only righteous for me to think this way about you all because I have you in my core, in my cardia, the innermost part of my being. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Again, that's a rationalization. That's a thought process. That is a a deliberate choice on Paul's part to place the Philippians at the core of his being. Then he talks about the emotions based on that. Verse 8, For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Based upon the righteous thinking grounded in grace, he expresses that emotionally with a longing. It's been a while since he's seen the Philippians. And depending on where you date the writing of Philippians, it's it's been a while or it's been a long, long while. Uh, If you accept the Roman imprisonment view, it's been a long time. But, even, but with the Ephesian imprisonment view that I'm defending and, and teaching, even then it's still been since the second missionary journey was the last time he'd been in Philippi. And he was eager to get back. And so he was longing for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so um, on Sunday we took the time to go through this and I'll bring this up here again. Let's see. Nope, back up. I want to do this. Find the slide where we had left off. Here we go. Paul's thinking is righteous thinking grounded in grace. So his feelings reflect the affection of Christ. And that is so key. And I guarantee this is true for you and me and for anyone 
that if you want to adjust your thinking by the Word of God, that's what the Word of God does. Romans chapter 12. The Word of God will transform your thinking. The emotions then will be a reflection of that. And you can have your, your emotional life can be in conformity with righteous thinking, not the other way around. You don't want to put your emotions in the driver's seat. You don't want your, in, your thinking to try to uh, adjust itself based upon how you're feeling. That's a, that's a roller coaster. Okay? And you could be feeling one thing today and feeling something else tomorrow, feeling something else the day after that. And if you put feelings in the driver's seat and then try to adjust your thinking based upon what you're feeling today, then you're just setting yourself up for something that's not a biblical practice, let me tell you. Okay? And so the Bible's making this very clear. Thinking is according to the Word of God, and then emotions can be shaped by that thinking. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful order in that regard. So uh, we had some subpoints on this and discussed this, how we have righteous judgment, how we put people in our heart, in our cardia, in our cardia and uh, the application there. All right, then point D was the conclusion here. The, uh, because of Paul's righteous thinking, he then developed an affectionate longing for the, for the Philippian saints. And it was not a longing that came about for the Corinthian saints. <laughs> he never told the Corinthians, oh, I'm longing to come to you. Uh, he, he warned them several times, I'm coming to you and it will not be pleasant when I get there. All right, because Paul was going to have to administer discipline. He was going to have to deal with false teachers. He was going to have to engage in some spiritual combat when he got there. See, or so he thought as he was writing 1 Corinthians and the first half of 2 Corinthians. Um, he never expressed a deep longing for them. He did long for the, for the Thessalonians and he longed for the Philippians. He longed for these uh, Macedonian believers. And that's, uh, that's a blessing as well to consider. All right. We talk about epipatheo, to long for, to yearn, to desire, as the deer pants for the water brook. If you're familiar with that in Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for thee, O Lord. We should long for doctrine. We should long for Bible teaching. We should long for one another. And this is, uh, this is the blessing of how God designed it. We are a family and we should develop these kind of emotional uh, circumstances as appropriate in the Word of God. So that's epipatheo. And then the vocabulary for splanknon is where we uh, got our most chuckles in that. Simply because splanknon is a term that references the, the intestines, that references your entrails. All right. And isn't it interesting? Why? Um, you ever thought about this? Why, when an animal was sacrificed, were the entrails removed? Well, I mean, why? I mean, couldn't you? I mean, no, there were some where the whole thing went up as a whole burnt offering. There were, there were some sacrifices where entrails and all, you just chucked the whole thing on there. But for most of the sacrifices, for the, uh, particularly for those sacrifices centering on, on peace and reconciliation and fellowship, the, the entrails are removed. And they're, they're separated out. They're going to be buried outside the camp. It's only going to be the, the fatty portions are going to be offered up. It's going to be certain, uh, the choice uh, uh, the choice portions that are offered up, the entrails are removed. And that to me is also, I think, telling in a doctrinal way. Maybe I don't know, Robert taught Leviticus years ago. I don't know if he encountered any commentary on this or thoughts, but my something I think about is that if the entrails speak of emotions, then perhaps this is a genius way on God's part to say, uh, 
try to keep your worship from getting too emotional. Try to keep your worship from being a legitimate soul function of loving the Lord your God with all your cardia, your noose, your pneuma, your, your psuche, and don't, don't confuse emotions with worship. And that to me is, is interesting because I think we live in a generation where, man, emotions is worship, okay? And if I go to church and I'm feeling great and then my arms are wa- waving around and I'm just all jazzed about the music or whatever, and then we, you know, we confuse that with worship. Wait a minute. So uh, it's curious to me to go back, and I haven't done this for a while, but to go back to Leviticus and view all those places where the entrails were removed and that they were not appropriate to be offered up as a, as a sacrifice. Anyway, so we've had a lot of uh, intestinal uh, discussions related to uh, Splanknon and why as an idiom, as an idiom now, uh, it refers to the emotions, the emotional heart, not the intellectual heart, not the core of your identity. If you, if you identify with your emotions, that's a problem. Say, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm an emotional person. Well, wait a minute, <laughs> okay? We all have emotions, but we shouldn't be, we shouldn't cause our emotions to be the forefront of our identity of who we are. All right? So uh, we centered on all of that, which then got us into uh, verses 9 and following. Now, he says, and this I pray. So he's already had the Thanksgiving prayers going back to verse 3. He's always had thanksgiving and remembrance. He's been, his prayer life has been focused on that in the past. Now he's carrying his, his prayers into the future. He has an ongoing prayer uh, uh, request. So this is point 10 in the outline. Paul followed his thanksgiving offering with an intercession for the Philippians' ongoing ministry. So we can view with now 3 through 8 complete. That's uh, everything centered on his thanksgiving and remembrance, looking back. Now he's looking forward. He says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's his prayer request for the Philippian believer. That's my prayer request for Austin Bible Church. That's my request. That should be all of our prayer requests for all of us. This is a marvelous thumbnail for what the Christian way of life is about. How do we abound in love more and more? All right, we all of us we should be abounding in love more and more, and we do so in epinosis and all discernment, in real knowledge and all discernment. I think all is all, and we're going to talk about all here uh, tonight. So uh, he wants their love to abound. The principal prayer petition. Remember we had a primary prayer practice back in verse 3. Now we have a principal prayer petition. The first thing to pray for. Not for their health, not for their money, not for earthly things, not for, you know, most, uh, most prayer requests tend to be centered on stuff. All right? It's this uh, principal prayer petition is for agape love to abound more and more. The abundance of agape, all right, for agape to abound. And uh, the verb parasuo is a Greek verb, 
Uh, there's cognate adjectives and other things that speak of abundance, all right? And it's plain and simple. It means more. <laughs> we, can, we can thrive in that. We're Americans. We like more, okay? Better, more, greater. That's our, that's our whole culture centered on more. And uh, that's what parasuo is about, to abound, to have an abundance, and for agape to abound. And specifically when they've got tons of agape already, but Paul says that agape can abound more and more. And this is what he's asking for. Matter of fact, I think uh, these other verses that we looked at Sunday morning are useful, especially the, the Thessalonican uses, um, to abound more and more. I don't want to repeat what we did on Sunday, but if you'll uh, just take a quick peek here at, at 1 Thessalonians 4. Remember, Thessalonica, like Philippi, they were neighbors. They were both uh, Macedonian churches. They were uh, in fairly close proximity to each other, certainly by the standard of the ancient world. And, um, you know, you could, you could make that walk in less than two weeks. That's, that's pretty close, okay? Um, I don't know, that, that scale, that economy of scale, doesn't that just, it gets you sometimes. We were watching 1776 last night and Abigail Adams was asking John to come visit her in Boston, right? Because he was in Philadelphia, you know? It's only... 300 miles, if you left now, you could be here in only, you know, eight days or something like that. I forget what she said. but um, Anyway, so Thessalonica and Philippi were neighbors, and being as close as they were, and, and having a similar Macedonian culture and Macedonian background, it's interesting to me how these churches, uh, very in a similar fashion, plus Berea, they thrived under, under Bible teaching. And they, they were searching the Scriptures, see if these things are so. They're thriving under biblical teaching. And so 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Notice in verse 1, he says, you guys are doing everything right. Do more of it. See, and that's just like Philippians. Paul had nothing but praise for the Philippian saints. He was not critical of anything they were doing. But he wants them to excel still more. He wants their love to abound more and more. And uh, down to uh, verse 9 and verse 10 of this, of this passage, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. He says, you guys are the last people in the world that need, to, need me to write about love. Love of the brethren. Okay? You know, pick something that's your specialty and if someone's going to write to you about it, what are they going to tell you? Okay? He says, you, you have no need of anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Even without the academic doctrine being taught, the Spirit was working in them. This was a loving congregation. Indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who in all Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And there's a whole sermon right there, okay? But the principle is they're doing everything right and he encourages them to excel still more. And the idea of bigger, better, more is, uh, is an ambition to be quiet, <laughs> to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. And then you can love even more. 
All right. Anyway, that was the, the exhortation there. There's also uh, chapter 3 and verse 12 with an abounding application, Second uh, Thessalonians, Second Corinthians, a lot of abounding there. So that's the principal prayer application. I want Austin Bible Church to have more love in 2017 than we had in 2016. And I want Austin Bible Church to have more love in 2018 than we have in 2017. That love can abound more and more. And can we ever exhaust it? Can we ever peak? Can we ever reach a point where that's it? We've, we've reached uh, like peak oil. We've reached peak love, okay? And there's just no more. Of course not. Because God is love and God is infinite. We can never run out of, of agape and, and, our, and our appreciation of it, our use of it, our embrace of it, our expression of it, it never stops. And so uh, we have that aspect there. Now, in order to make agape abound, it's going to abound in these ways. Agape abounds via full knowledge and discernment. Agape abounds via full knowledge and discernment. And I'm going to keep using agape on my slides so that we don't lose track, right? That this is agape love. This is God's love. This is not man's love. This is not any other kind of love. This is not a love of a man for a woman or a love of a parent for a child or a sexual love or a a food love, like, you know, I love cheeseburgers or anything like that, okay? We, we use love so loosely. There's so many different ways to, to use the word love. But agape is specific. Agape is God himself. God is agape. And God so agapaoed the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ so agapaoed the church that he gave himself for her. Agape is a love that, that drives the, the character of the one loving to sacrifice on behalf of someone else. That's what this love is. And for it to abound, notice it doesn't abound in touchy-feely. <laughs> it doesn't abound in the, the romance and the, uh, and the uh, whatever, the passion. It doesn't abound in, in, uh, in, in those kind of things. It abounds in real knowledge and, dis- and all discernment. See. So uh, we're going to be very equipped to outline this and to structure this and to intellectually, academically tear it apart because it is fundamentally a, a, an intellect activity, not an emotion activity. We want to be clear on that. So uh, epinosis <coughs> is our term. And the big problem, perhaps, is... Uh, especially with the New American Standard Bible and in many common English translations, is that they make no distinction between gnosis and epinosis. In, uh, in almost every case, they just translate it as knowledge and, and let it go. And uh, unless you can color code it, unless you can read the Greek text or figure out what you're dealing with, it's like agape and phileo. You don't know if you just see the use of the word love in the Bible. Well, what kind of love is that? Is that agape love or philos love? What kind of love is that? And uh, same thing with knowledge. You read the word knowledge and you don't know. Is that gnosis, epinosis, gnosko, epigonosko? Is it oida? Is it sophia? What, what are we talking about? Sunadesis? I mean, there's so many different Greek words for knowledge. You would think we could start to uh, reflect that a little bit in our English usage uh, and, and have some consistency in, in particularly gnosis, epinosis. Goodness, because epi intensifies it. So uh, for your vocabulary studies, uh, this is sub-point one, epinosis 
E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S, number 1922 is the strongest concordance number on that, and it's used 20 times in the Greek New Testament. Uh, whereas gnosis is used 29 times in the, in the New Testament. Gnosis is number 1108, is the strongest number there. And um, 1108 for gnosis, 29 times. And we'll note, this is not the knowledge that puffs up. Epinosis does not puff up. Gnosis puffs up, but epinosis does not puff up, see. And, and I think if you're familiar with it, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Love edifies. And the reason why epinosis doesn't puff up is because I believe love, the abounding love, is what happens when you're obtaining that epinosis. And, that, and when you're making your gnosis epinosis, that love is abounding and it keeps you from being puffed up. So 1 Corinthians 8, 1, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We gnosko that we all have gnosis. Gnosis makes arrogant, but love edifies. Love edifies. And what is it we're supposed to do to one another? You and I. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to edify one another. If we're not building up one another, what are we doing? Because I mean, otherwise, why are we still here? We're, we should be seeking for the things that make for the building up of one another. God is in the business of building us up. Are we not His fellow workers? If God's building us up, why are we tearing one another down? That's the, that's the great evil of, of church fights and schisms and, and carnality and tearing down a brother in Christ, tearing down a sister. You talk about being the nemesis of what God's doing. God is building up. God's building up and we're tearing down. That's a problem. No, we should be building up. And that's what love does. Love edifies. And um, gnosis puffs up. Love builds up. Remember that? That's the contrast. So um, this epinosis, where when love is abounding, that's what epinosis is dealing with. And we're turning our gnosis into epinosis, and we do so by, by what? Adding more gnosis? I mean, how do we do that? Well, I know this, I know this, I know this, and I just want to keep accumulating what I know... And so at what point then do I have so much gnosis stacked up? I mean, does it take 10 gnosis to make an epinosis? How much, you know, how many gnosises do I need to make an epinosis? It's not how it works. What you need is a whole pile of gnosis and then mix some love in there, okay? Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so if you're mixing grace into to your gnosis, then that's when, that's when the love's going to abound. And that's when the epinosis is going to take the, all that factual information, the facts and figures and the data and all the stuff you know, but it's going to be, it's going to be uh, tempered with the grace and love that allows you to live that out for the edification of brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, So that you know there's no such thing as an idol, but you can still be gracious and patient with a, a weak sister that's struggling with that idolatry. Okay? or meat sacrifice to idols, or uh, whatever it might be, tongues, the gift of tongues, whatever. You've got a, you've got a loved one that's got a blind spot in, in, in doctrine. All right, And your gnosis isn't going to help, but your epinosis will. The knowledge and the love together that's going to edify, that's going to come alongside and serve. It's a beautiful thing. Now, um, at the risk of uh, spending a ton of time on this, let me 
Ooh, let's not do that. Let's see if I can pop this out here. Float this panel. Here we go. Just limit it to the new American standard. Oh, that'd be kind of curious. I wonder if I can do that. Ah. Okay, I'll play with that later. That's kind of cool. I didn't know I could do that. We're just going to limit to the New American Standard Bible. All right, so here's a verse list of uh, gnosis and epinosis verses. All right. Remember, I said there was 20 on the epinosis and there's 29 on the gnosis. Well, this is a combined list with 49 verses. And, uh, and just by scanning down that column, it's, got, it's what they call the snippet view. By scanning down that column, uh, you can get a good reminder for what passage that is or what the verse is about in its context. And then by coloring them the way that they're coloring them, the yellow is the gnosis, the blue is the epinosis. And uh, we can see, we can get a, a quick snapshot for these things. Um, and we can save a lot of page flipping by... Uh, by doing this. Um, and it may be also useful to you as well because some of the verses may not be what you expect. There might be some verses that you are just, you'd, you'd bet 10 bucks that there's epinosis there, but no, it's only gnosis. And then there's other passages that you would have thought were, were simply gnosis, but you realize, wait a minute, that's epinosis in that passage? I didn't realize that. And so you maybe take a fresh look at a verse that you had kind of dismissed earlier and say, there's something deeper here with respect to a, an epinosis application in this passage. So uh, first thing I notice is that of these 49 results, uh, very few of them are in the Gospels. Okay, In fact, if you like pictures, you can come up here and graph the results. And as you graph the results... Um, you see where they're found. You make it bigger. I keep forgetting that we've got some back row people there. Um, but look at that, just the two uses in Luke, and that's it for the Gospels. Okay? Otherwise, it's Romans to Second Peter. This is, uh, this is where we have gnosis and epinosis in the New Testament. Uh, so almost nothing, just two little uses in Luke, nothing in Acts, um, nothing in uh, First, Second, Third John or Jude or Revelation. All right. And, uh, and then looking at the, the, the height of it there, uh, Romans has six uses, uh, 1 Corinthians has ten uses. As a matter of fact, our little look here in Philippians, this is, uh, this is what we're looking at right here. <laughs> so Philippians is not a big book on knowledge, but it is a big book on thinking, okay? And we'll see that as well. Second Peter's got seven uses there. So um, Luke 1 and Luke 11... Are the uses on that uh, the the song of Zacharias to uh, his his son John the Baptist that his birth is to give his ministry as the forerunner is to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins gnosis information and we all should be preaching that gnosis information if we're given the gospel to unbelievers that's just gnosis the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins and uh, then he rebukes the lawyers for they've taken away the key of knowledge. They themselves didn't enter in and they hindered others from coming in. Um, Romans one twenty eight is interesting and it's very idiomatic. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. 
They did not see fit to epinosis God. They knew God, but they didn't epinosis God, see. And it's an interesting idiomatic use there. It's one of the, the most awkward of all the epinosis uses that's there. It's in Romans one twenty-eight. But I find it interesting. Even the atheist that hates the God they don't want to admit exists uh, still in their hatred form confess that he exists. Okay? Because no one truly hates what they don't believe in. And uh, it's, it's not possible to do that. Romans 2.20 um, talks about the natural knowledge that we have through creation. Uh, but then we get to Romans 3. Through the law, through the law comes the epinosis of sin. Through the law comes the epinosis of sin. And this is part of Paul's uh, development here in Romans about why the law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Or how about Romans 10 too? He bears witness to the Jews that they have a zeal. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with epinosis. Not in accordance with epinosis. See, I think they had a zeal in accordance with gnosis. Because knowledge puffs up. And who was more puffed up than the Pharisees? They had a zeal, but the zeal was in accordance with gnosis, not epinosis. And that's why it's an epinosis used there in Romans 10 too. Uh, the other Romans uses are all there in uh, gnosis. Come on, scroll down, scroll down, here we go. Everything in 1 Corinthians is all gnosis. Everything in 2 Corinthians is all gnosis. But when you get to the prison epistles, when we get to Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the pastoral epistles, he starts to uh, put more epinosis in here. Okay, The great prayer request of Ephesians 1.17, that God would grant you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the epinosis of Him. God wants us to have that epinosis of Him. The love of Christ surpasses gnosis. Does the love of Christ surpass epinosis? No, because I think the love of Christ is what makes epinosis. I think it's what turns our gnosis into epinosis. But that's Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ which surpasses gnosis, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Or how about Ephesians 4.13, why are we in Bible class? Why do we operate in a local church? So that we can be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. And so that we can attain to the unity of the faith and of the epinosis of the Son of God to a mature man. Okay, we're familiar with Ephesians 4? That's the passage that tells us why we have apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers. Okay? Today we just say evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. We're here to be built up. And until we reach that epinosis of the Son of God, then we're not there yet. We're still growing. Uh, Philippians 1.9 is our use of epinosis here we're looking at tonight. That your love may abound in real knowledge and all discernment. And then uh, Philippians 3.8 where Paul says, I count all things to be lost or rubbish in view of the surpassing value of gnosis, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. You know, the things that he threw away, he said that they weren't even worth the level of gnosis, let alone the level of epinosis. Okay? And he considered all that to be loss compared to gnosis, which itself is inferior to epinosis. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. 
And, and this, by the way, is so parallel to Philippians, and th- I think it's germane to what we're dealing with here tonight. Let's flip over there, uh, Colossians 1. That's another benefit to having the snippet view. It reminds you of the ones you wanted to look at more closely. Um, in Colossians 1, we've got almost the same outline as Philippians 1. Paul is greeting a church. He's telling them why, he, why he's thankful. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks. And uh, he has a, a message for why he's thankful. And then he turns it to what he's praying for now, looking forward. And in verse 9 he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the epinosis of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is so parallel to our verse tonight. To be abounding in love and full knowledge and discernment. To be filled with the epinosis of His will in spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How are you going to do that if you can't approve the things that are excellent and disapprove the things that are not excellent? Okay, this is, uh, I think this is a parallel text to what we're looking at in Philippians. He just has a different way of saying it to the, to the Colossians. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, notice now, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Slightly different, but what do we find out in Philippians? Paul says that you may be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Again, a serving now with a view that any moment now we can be face to face and answer for all we're doing at the judgment seat of Christ. And I think that same uh, emphasis is, uh, is there. All right. Um, Colossians 2.2 is more uh, epinosis. Their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance, that is the epinosis of understanding. Uh, no, I'm sorry, full assurance of understanding resulting in the epinosis, true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself. If you want to study dispensations in the mystery doctrine of the church, that's going to require epinosis laid out there. Uh, verse 3 has a gnosis used. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 10. Colossians 3.10. Are you putting on the new self? Do you have your mind set on the things above? And you know, if we put on the new self, which is being renewed to an epinosis, a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That new nature. We should be putting it on day by day and being renewed. 1 Timothy 2.4 God desires for all men to be saved and to come to the epinosis of the truth. Alright. It's unfortunate. I mean some don't even come to the gnosis. Some are saved and then they never grow in anything. They never are discipled. They never grow. They don't even accumulate the gnosis to get puffed up with. They just, uh, they just, uh, they're happy to not go to hell when they die and that's, that's it. And they never grow. They never learn. They never attain gnosis, let alone epinosis. And God wants us to, to attain to the epinosis. That's what he says here. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the epinosis of the truth. Then there's the adversary we fight against in chapter 6, the opposing arguments of what is falsely called gnosis, the, what is the so-called knowledge, you know, 
the conventional wisdom of our generation, because everybody knows that humanity is causing global warming, for example. <laughs> everybody knows that Big Bang evolution is fact. Everybody is, knows that boys can be girls if they want to. Okay? I mean, think about it. We live in this generation that is so confused. And what everybody knows just isn't so. Okay? And we know what we know because we know who we know. And we know that He's faithful and true. And thank God for that, that He keeps our eyes where they need to be. and We have the Spirit of truth within us. You know, I, I call me old-fashioned, but I still teach the, the definition of truth as that which conforms to reality. You know? That should not be controversial. It's kind of been the bedrock of Western thought since Aristotle. Okay? But nowadays, man, reality, well, you can have your own reality. You can define your own reality. You can make your own reality. In which case, then, there is no truth. If you define your own reality, then uh, what's true for you is not true for necessarily anybody else. And uh, then it's, it's like, wow. Not only are we postmodern, we're just deconstructing language and everything. There's just whatever you want. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. So, um, yes, that's 1 Timothy 6.20, the opposing arguments of what is falsely called gnosis. Um, the Lord's bondservant must be gentle in 2 Timothy 2.25, that, that God may grant them repentance leading to the epinosis of the truth. Okay, For those believers that are prisoners of war in the angelic conflict, you're going to be held captive by Satan to do his will. You're familiar with that? 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. And it's, it's, uh, it's a vital function. We don't just uh, surrender to say, oh, well, you know, they're on their own path. They're finding what works for them. No, they, are, they have embraced one of Satan's lies and they need to be rescued from that. So... Um, All right, verse, um, I think it comes down to uh, almost this whole chapter here, but verse 14, remind, the, uh, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. We're here for the blessing of the hearers, the edification of the hearers, not ruining them. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling or rightly dividing the word of truth, but avoid cosmos, worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. It just rolls downhill. It gets worse. Uh, uh, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth. Now, what does that verb tell you? They used to be in the truth. You can't leave somewhere you've never been. They were in the truth and they went astray. That's the statement of the Holy Spirit here. I realize folks want to say, well, they were never saved in the first place. That's not right. They were in the truth, and they suffered shipwreck. Gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they've upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. See, when you're in the epinosis of the Word of God, you've got stability. The firm foundation of God stands. Everybody else around you might be crazy, but you're standing on the rock. Okay, it's a firm foundation. 
The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. We are now His. We have a new way to live because we belong to Him. So uh, this then takes us into the aspect of cleansing and why we have to cleanse ourselves. In a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, some to honor, some to dishonor. We want to make sure that we keep ourselves suitable for God's honorable purposes. And uh, that's the admonition here. Cleanse yourself from these things. Be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. If you don't do that, what, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're, you're no longer a part of His household. No, you're still a part of His household, but you're not suitable for the honorable purpose. God will still use you for a dishonorable purpose. So flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I love this. This is the, the, the benefit of having um, biblical peer pressure. We want to have the positive reinforcement from fellow brothers and sisters in the Word of God. And, and I like that. And I don't know if you were counting or not, in verse 22, fleeing had one object and pursuing had four. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So, I mean, you should spend about four times the amount of effort uh, pursuing the Word of God as opposed to just the amount of effort in not doing something. Okay? If you just sit around all day saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, well, you're fixating on what you shouldn't be doing, and you're kind of talking yourself into doing it. All right? Quit thinking about it. Start pursuing the things of the Lord and do so with fellow believers, with those who call upon the Lord, as it says there. And refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong. Now this is a lot of introduction to get down to verse 25 here, but there's a reason, okay? This is not just the pastor of the church, this is every born-again believer, the Lord's bondservant. Don't be quarrelsome, be kind, be able to teach, be patient. What are those descriptions of? That's agape love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Right? Able to teach. Patient when wrong. With gentleness. Correcting those who are in opposition. See, they're not enemies, but they are in opposition. If perhaps, maybe, God might grant them repentance leading to the epinosis of the truth. Chances are that carnal brother you're dealing with knows better. He has gnosis, but he needs the epinosis leading to the, uh, the, the repentance leading to the epinosis of the truth. That they may come to their senses. That's the same language when the prodigal was out there eating with the pigs. Actually, no, the pigs were eating better than he was. Okay, He's feeding the pigs, wishing he could eat what they're eating. And he came to his senses. Same language. We come to our senses and say, wait a minute, what am I doing here? I should be in my father's house, not this place. They come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The unbeliever is not a captive. The unbeliever is a citizen of this cosmos. But for a believer that's delivered from the cosmos but then gets captive again, gets sucked back into that darkness again, that's a prisoner of war in the angelic conflict. We want to try to rescue them. And that's a epinosis. How about chapter 3 and verse 7? 
weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning. So what's the problem? Always learning and never able to come to the epinosis of the truth. And they're always learning. What are they accumulating? It's not epinosis. And they're learning and they're limited only to the gnosis. They're not coming to the epinosis. That's a problem. Finally, Titus 1.1, the introduction to Titus. It's uh, part of the um, greeting. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the faith of those chosen of God and the epinosis of the truth, which is according to godliness. Gnosis is not according to godliness. Epinosis is according to godliness. Gnosis will puff up. Okay? Epinosis, which is an according to godliness. All right, so that's our contrast there. That didn't take too long, did it? So agape is going to abound with full knowledge and discernment. You want to have more love? You've got to make sure you do more than just gnosis. You've got to get the epinosis. That epinosis has to be has to be a part of it. You've got to be growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Without the grace, all you got is the gnosis. All right. Um, beyond gnosis then comes perception, comes uh, discernment. And this is not just spotting something. This is spotting something for what it really is. This is the critical eye. This is what we're told, uh, (laughs) Scripture tells us to do over and over again, and the world tells us don't do it, right? Don't be judging. Don't be so judgmental when the Bible says just the opposite. Judge, okay? Judge with righteous judgment. Have a discerning eye. Know, uh, you got to have your senses trained to know good and evil. Ephesians 5, uh, Hebrews 5.14 is a cognate form of this. So uh, when we come back on Sunday, we'll, uh, we'll center on this and then we'll, we'll uh, discuss what this is about. But eistasis, uh, don't, don't, don't be surprised if you've never seen these words before because they only show up here, okay? Eistasis is, uh, is what we call a hapax. It only shows up here. It's the only verse. So if you, unless you've done an exegetical study on Philippians 1.10, you've never seen this Greek word before. In real knowledge and all eistasis. Um, You've possibly seen a cognate form that's used in Hebrews 5.14, the eisthetarion, which is the capacity to have eistasis. Okay? But other than uh, this passage in Hebrews 5.14, that's it in the New Testament for this pretty precise vocabulary. So uh, we'll discuss it. But the faculty of mind for perceiving, the really to see it for what it is, not just to see what they're showing you. Okay? Don't just look at what they're showing you. See what they're not showing you. See what it really is. Look at it with God's viewpoint. Okay? Because it could be the direct opposite of what they're showing you. And, uh, and you and I, we're expected. We're accountable. We're not Adam and Eve living in the, in the Garden of Eden in the dispensation of innocence where uh, they've not yet partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've got full knowledge of good and evil. And we, we're accountable with our eyes open to distinguish between the two. We want to approve the one and reject the other. Okay? And uh, that's what this is about. And the more we're able to do this, guess what? It's love that's abounding. Love feeds this. It allows us to make those tough calls. Okay? 
And that's, that's the opposite of what this world is shoving down our throat these days. So stay tuned. On Sunday morning, we're going we're gonna to illustrate with some pretty blunt illustrations, okay? Because uh, I, I think we need to. Otherwise, uh, believers who should know better end up their feelings end up getting them to compromise their thinking. And uh, we've had enough of that. We've got to stop. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you that your truth is the objective standard of righteousness. It shapes our thinking, Father. Our thinking can be righteous thinking. And righteous thinking then can have emotions in line. And then, Father, everything just follows. And I pray that we would abound in our love. And abounding in our love, Father, will bring about this epinosis and discernment that we need. So, Father, uh, teach us how all this comes together. Help us to, uh, to accept that Paul's wish prayer for the, Thess- for the Philippians is is your wish prayer for every local church. It is your desire for Austin Bible Church that, uh, that this flock collectively will abound in love more and more and that each member of this flock will individually abound in love more and more. And Father, uh, we're only going to do so in the epinosis and the full discernment. So uh, teach us what these things are about so that we don't uh, waste our time chasing after emotional things and calling it love. Father, uh, open our eyes to what the real applications are so that our love indeed will abound. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.